The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Man, at this time, the kids can go ahead uh, and be dismissed to their classes. Can we just give it up for all the kids' workers and all the volunteers that make that possible? We love you guys. Thank you for your service. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 13. And Matthew chapter 6, so you can go ahead and start making your way there. Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and we've been going through uh, what we call here Next Steps. Uh, And so three weeks ago, we started this Next Steps series talking about examining our hearts, because how many of you know Next Steps is about your heart? Amen? All right. Everyone say, my heart. This service, this sermon, this message, this book is about your heart lining up with who God is and what God uh, has done. And so we want to talk about taking next steps and following Jesus, and really that comes down to our heart. Let me give you an example in um, Mark chapter 10 and uh, Matthew 19. Jesus has is, is been doing ministry, and so he travels from place to place, uh, healing and teaching and, and doing ministry stuff. And on his way uh, to one area, a, a young man, the Bible actually calls him a, a rich young ruler, so he had power, he had authority, he had wealth, uh, and he's educated, just like uh, many of us. And so this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and he says, good teacher, what do I need to do? To inherit eternal life. And isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't just give him a a response right away, but he wants to see where his heart is. And so Jesus, he asks a question back to the man. How many of you know? If you answer a question with a question, you know you're wise. So Jesus comes back and he says, why do you call me good? You see, there's only one who is good, and that is God alone. Jesus asks a very similar question to his disciples when he says, who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus wants to know, okay, you call me good, you ask me a question about eternal life, but I need to know something about your heart. Why is it that you're calling me good? Do you think because I I give good teachings? Do you think because I'm a prophet? Do you think just because I'm a wise person? Or do you think I'm God? And do you call me good because you know I'm God? Do you call me good because you think I'm the Savior? Do you call me good because you understand that I am one with God? Why do you call me good? And so that's a question we can ask ourselves this morning, why do you call Jesus Lord? Is that because that's the title that you know to call him by? Why do you call Jesus Savior? Is it because that's what we call him, or is that because what's something that you've experienced in your own life? Jesus wants to know from this young man, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Do you believe that I'm just wise or that I'm God? He goes on his way. Jesus then says, well, if you want eternal life, you know what you ought to do. Keep the commandments. You know, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. So don't lie to people. Be honest. Honor your father and mother, things like that. And then Jesus just continues to walk. 
And the young man, he stops Jesus. He's whoa, Jesus. It's like, it's like his face lights up. And he says, he says, good teacher, listen, I'm in luck because I've done all of these things since I was a kid. And Jesus, the scripture says that he looked at him and loved him. And Jesus says, well, there's actually one thing that you still lack. Well, what is it? He says, I want you to go and sell all that you have and give it away. I want you to give it to the poor. And then once you do that, then you come and follow me. The scripture says that this, the man's face fell because he was rich. Listen, there are two ways to view Christianity. There are two viewpoints by which we can view Christianity in our faith. The first one is through a ritualistic, moral lens, meaning I see Christianity as I do these good things and I avoid these bad things and God comes and establishes his moral law so that I can do these things and stay away from these bad things and tells me what is good and what is not good. And so what I've seen is that the longer you've been in church, you tend to lean this way. Do good, don't do bad. You know Keep the commandments. Or what I've seen is that you have not been in church and you tend to lean this way because you're like, I would go to church, but all those church folk, they're really judgmental. They always look at what I do or what I don't do and they judge me. And so if you've not been in church for a long time or never been in church, you probably lean toward this viewpoint that Christianity is a list of moral do's and don'ts. But that is not Christianity at all. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't desire righteousness. And I'm not saying that God doesn't establish himself as the holy standard because he absolutely does. But the good news of the Christian gospel is that you cannot reach or attain righteousness without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ, not a list of commandments. Are you tracking with me? And so when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about a righteousness that is not earned or deserved, but rather a righteousness that is gifted to you by the righteous one, Jesus Christ, which means you cannot do life following Jesus without doing life with Jesus. And so the rich young man says, well, just give me the list. And he says, you cannot do this without me. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. You do not have the will or the want to follow Jesus without a relationship with Jesus. You and I need, step one, to be born again. We need this empowering Holy Spirit to begin to follow and take spiritual next steps following Jesus. And so for that, we need Jesus. And so uh, what that means 
is that if all you know is what's right and what's wrong, and all you do is try to do right and try not to do wrong, at very best, you'll be self-righteous. And at very least, you'll fall short, and then you'll go underground, and you'll try and hide your struggles so nobody knows. And you feel shame, and you hide, and your life is full of pretending that you don't fail. And then what happens is you just begin to learn the language of church. You learn what to say and what not to say and where to raise your hands and when to say amen. Mm, that's good. And you learn the language and you learn the culture, but all the time your heart is far from God. You've just learned to play the part and you've hide in the pew. Or what happens is you are self-righteous in a way that you are religiously nailing it. Like you're saying, I don't do that, I do this, I'm white knuckling this, I am a good religious boy or girl, and then you look down on others who can't seem to get it right, right, who fail to honor God, and in the end, you've missed Christianity, you've missed the gospel. And so the truth of the Christian faith, it's not morality or self-righteousness, but rather it's redemption and grace-given righteousness. If you become self-righteous, Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. It's like you've cleaned the outside of the tomb, you've cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside it's just dead man's bones. It does you no good. And so Jesus is always about the heart. And Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us while we were sinners, amen? So it's not, oh, I gotta clean myself up so that God would be pleased with me, or I gotta do some good things and stay away from the bad things so that God would somehow like me, but rather it's because God loves me while I was a sinner, while I am a sinner, while I was separated from God, while I was dead in my trespasses and sin, while I was an enemy of God, while I was a slave to sin, he sought me. He loved me. He came to me and died for me despite me ever doing anything right or wrong. And that's the good news of the gospel. That God sent the righteous one for the unrighteous. And now, follow me, through faith, the Holy Spirit now empowers and dwells in those who would believe so that now I have a want to walk in his ways. You're following me with that. Once you see and know Christianity through that gospel lens of grace, it starts to change you. It starts to transform you. And let me tell you what's hard for our kind of, you know, Western, linear, educated, religious culture is we just want the list. Amen? Just, just, Pastor, just tell me what to do, tell me what to stay away from, and I'll do it. Because if I can do the list, then I can hold up my spiritual report card and show you how worthy I actually am. And we all wanna feel worthy, amen? And so we'd rather the list, just give me. Good teacher, what do I need to do? Give me the list. The point has never been about the list. 
It's never been about you proving your worth. It's never been about you taking the list and saying, oh, I guess I'll do this. But rather, it's always been about a change of heart that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And the relationship with Jesus will be the transforming force that genuinely, casually, over time, pulls you and draws you into being more and more like Christ. And so we don't take steps to earn the favor of God or to seek the forgiveness of God. We take steps because we are loved by God. We are filled with God. We do genuinely want to move toward God because we have a relationship with God. So next steps is about your what? It's about your heart. It's not about a list. You're following me, right? So this redemptive grace view of Christianity versus this moral view or list religion is extremely, extremely important in light of the next step that we're going to talk about today, which, by the way, always feels a little heavy to talk about. It's like we're talking about the one who shall not be named. Tom Riddle. Okay, the Bible has 500 verses on prayer. It also has almost 500 verses on faith. But there are over 2,000 verses on, anybody want to guess? Money. Did you feel it? It's like the thing that shouldn't be named. One out of 10 verses in the New Testament deal with money. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money. 25% of Jesus' teaching addresses financial resources. Yet Jesus never takes an offering. Hmm? He's never like, you know what I need? I need a chariot. I get around these towns a lot faster and a lot easier, so we're going to take an offering right now. Jesus never takes an offering. Why? Because he's about your heart. He wants to talk to you about your heart. And a heart transformed leads to action. And and so yet what we see in the New Testament is that money has a way to kind of weaving itself into your life and it can either become destructive or life-giving. All right? So today I want to start in Exodus and I want to look at the foundation that God sets up for his people so that you and I can get a glimpse of what it looks like to take the next step into generosity. Are you with me? All right, Exodus 13, Israel, uh, God's people are coming out of 400 years of captivity, all right? So they've been in slaves, they've been in the wilderness, God is delivering out, you know, the whole Red Sea thing, right? They walk through on dry ground, and then God comes to Moses and wants to lay out some next steps for his people so that they can genuinely walk in freedom with God. So look at Exodus 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 11, When the Lord, 
brings you into the land of the Canaanites that he swore to you and he swore to your fathers and shall give it to you. So he's saying, I got a land pick out for you. It's gonna be a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's gonna be a, a prosperous land. It's a promised land. I'm gonna, I promise this land to you. And when the Lord brings you into that land that he promised to give you, you shall set apart. Everyone say set apart. That word can also be translated as bring. You're going to set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem. Everyone say redeem. Okay, so we're sort of set apart and some we shall redeem with a lamb or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Sounds a little severe. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Everyone say redeem. Okay, so there were two classifications of animals. There were clean animals like a lamb or a cow and the, the clean animals, the firstborn of the clean ones, you shall bring as a sacrifice to God. So God says, I'm going to give to you all things. I'm going to give you cattle. I'm going to give you fields. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to give all these things to you. But when you are clean animals, when they have a child, you are to bring that child and you are to sacrifice it to God. But then there are also unclean animals like a donkey. And you don't sacrifice the donkey because it was unclean. So any unclean animal, you would have to redeem that animal by the sacrifice of a clean animal. Hmm? Sound familiar? And if you couldn't do that, you need to kill it. So if that seems serious to you, let me just clarify. God wanted his people to know the seriousness of clean and unclean, of righteous and unrighteous. Which is why God says, you also must redeem the firstborn among your sons. So there's clean that you would offer as a sacrifice. There's unclean that need to be redeemed by a sacrifice, which means you and I must be redeemed by a sacrifice. You're following me now. All right? So listen, what that means is you and I, we don't come into the world neutral. Amen? You're not born and you're like, well, let's just see if they're going to be a good boy or a good girl. Let's see how their scale tips. You're not neutral. You're unclean. Right? The Bible says that you and I, we have a sinful nature. We are sinful by birth. Right, We have a bent away from God. We are unclean. And so the scripture says that we're sinful and we've inherited a sin nature. All right, And so when we come into the world, we're not neutral. I don't have to teach my kids to sin. Parents, amen? You don't have to teach your kids to be selfish. They came to that inherently, probably by their mother, of course. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's better than I am. So the point is this, we need to be redeemed by a sacrifice. We need to be redeemed by a clean offering. And so even in Exodus 13, God teaches them about their need for Jesus, about their need of a righteous one coming to sacrifice for the unrighteous. 
And then in Exodus 13, 14, after he says, hey, I want you to make this sacrifice. I want you to bring this offering. I want you to set apart this animal. I want you to redeem those who are unclean. In verse 14, he says, okay, and then when your sons ask you, why do we bring the first of our flock back to God? He says, you're going to answer because we were slaves. Because we were slaves, and we were helpless, and we were hopeless, and we were held captive, but by God's grace and God's generous hand, he came down to save us. And if God saved us when we were slaves and have nothing, we can trust him to take care of us no matter where we are. If he saved us when we were helpless slaves, how much more can we trust him now to provide for us now that we are his children? And so when people ask you, why do you set apart so much? Why are you so generous? Why do you give unto the Lord the way that you do? Why do you give your first and your best to God? It's because we belong to God. And we trust him with everything. So I've got to ask you, would those around you even ask the question? Would your sons ever come to you and say, Dad, why are you so generous? Why do you give so much? Or would they ask, why don't we ever give to God? And you would respond, well, you see, son, God's not blessed us enough to be able to trust him. God's not blessed us enough to be able to trust his word. Let me ask you a really heartfelt question. What if your kid's future trust in God was based solely on what they observe coming from your generosity and giving? What kind of trust would they develop? Okay, listen to me. Hebrews tells us that God doesn't need an offering. God's not like, oh, if I just had more lambs, oh, if, if you could just bring in more bulls, then I could be God, then my glory would shine. No, no, no. Hebrews says God does not need the sacrifice. God does not need your offering. God does not need your giving. But God commands it in order to bend our hearts toward trusting him and loose our grip on the things of this world. And so bending our hearts Toward God as my savior, God as my deliverer, God is my provider, knowing that everything has been given to us by God and for God. Do you see the two viewpoints coming into play? You say, you know, uh, uh, I've done this, I've created this, I saved myself, I'm a good boy, I do what's right, I don't do what's wrong, and so everything I have is mine. 
versus the gospel of grace that says, I deserve nothing, I have done nothing, I own nothing, and so everything's been given to me by God and for God, so I've been entrusted to give back to God because I trust him with everything. You give God your first and your best, you are saying, I trust God. Why do you call me good? You trust God to provide for the future. And so listen, when the firstborn of the harvest comes, right, you're not real sure what's coming after it, do you? He says, bring to me the firstborn. Bring to me the first fruits. Bring to me the first of the season. Why the first? Why can't I just wait until after I have all these flocks and all these herds and all this fruit? Why can't I just see how much I have and then decide? Because that's not trust. That's actually not faith. God is after your heart. And so trust is supposed to be a declaration that says, you know what, I don't know what's coming next. I don't know what tomorrow holds but I trust you to take care of me. This is the most consistent giving principle in the Bible, giving your first and your best to God. And it all started with the very first offering, Cain and Abel. How many of you have heard of Cain and Abel? Both Cain and Abel both brought an offering to God. Cain was a farmer, so he brought produce. The problem was is that Cain waited until after the harvest came in to make the offering. I'll just read it to you, Genesis 4. Verse two, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In course time, Cain finally brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions and the Lord regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, no regard. The only difference in the two offerings is that Abel brought to God first before the rest of the flock came in and Cain waited to the end. And God says, there's something about that Cain's heart that's a little bit off. It wasn't the offering. It it was his heart. The fact that he didn't trust God. He, he, He gave God an offering, listen, out of duty rather than delight. Out of obligation, he was just keeping the list that required no faith. Proverbs 3, 9, it says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. But why would I do that? Verse 10, then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overthrow, overflow with new wine. For all you Baptist people, that's grape juice. Just kidding, that's not. I don't know why I say that stuff. (laughs) Here's the point. The language, the language of the scripture is to bring to the Lord, not donate. We are to set apart for the Lord, not donate. Well, you know, what's the difference? Well, you donate something that belongs to you that you want someone else to have. But you can't donate what belongs to someone. Right? Right? I mean, let me give you an example. If you were to borrow my car, and then when you were done with it, you would donate it back to me. 
No, no, no. You'd bring it back to me. Why? Because it belongs to me. That's how God feels about you trusting him. Listen, what do you own that is not God's? Nothing. Everything you have, everything you own, everything that has been given to you, listen to me, it's not yours. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. He belongs to you. He is in you. Everything you have belongs to God. And so that's how God feels. Why don't you just bring me what's mine? I give, I take away, I give all things by my grace. That is the gospel lens which which we see everything. It is the gospel-centered lens which brings us to Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus' teaching on the same thing. Look at what it says. Matthew 6, verse 19, super popular text. I'm sure you guys love it. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your, give me that word, there your heart will be also. So there is an inseparable attachment between your heart and your treasure. That's what Jesus says. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body Uh, The whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He's talking about the way you see things. We'll come back to it. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Everyone serves a master, but you can't serve two of them. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Say that in church. Now, what you see right out of the gate is don't do. Right? The list begins. Don't do. Don't do this. Do this. So what I need you to understand is that Jesus wants you to store up treasures for yourself. He wants you to have treasure, just not in a particular way. And so the do not here, listen to me, is to save you and save your spirit from anxiety and your desire to be God. That's why he says do not. It's why the next section is about anxiety. Isn't that funny? Anxiety follows the money talk. He says, everyone serves a master. So orient your life in such a way that actually sets you free rather than putting you into chains. He says, everyone serves a master, and so listen, if money is your master, there's going to be this anxiety, there's going to be this feeling like you've got to control stuff, and you've got to manipulate everything, because at the end of the day, Jesus is reminding you that you control less than you think. Amen? What do you really control? Nothing. 
right? He says, listen, you're going to deal with moths, those pesky little bugs. You're going to deal with rust. And then if there's not rust, then someone's going to take your stuff. And, and the truth is, you actually control less than you think. Jesus is not saying, listen, don't, don't not care about your stuff. You should care about your stuff, right? Your stuff is a good gift from God. God has given you that stuff. And so we are meant to steward all that we have and all that we've been given. And so, but what he's saying is that don't invest where things can be destroyed. Don't invest in your heart in such a way in all of these earthly things instead of heavenly things because these earthly things, you will have to be God over them and you can't control that. Don't let your heart bend in such a way that you're constantly worrying about stuff and money. Why? Because money is a terrible master. Jesus rather says, invest treasures in heaven. Now, what does that look like? Well, if you follow this narrative arc of scripture, it begins with honoring the Lord with the first and the best that God has provided you. Scripture actually uses this word tithe. Have you ever heard of that word? Tithe, I remember when I was a, a new Christian, I, not, I didn't know what that meant. What is, a, what is a tithe? Why are people talking about it? Right, it's this word tithe, it means 10th. So the first 10% were to bring unto the Lord and honor and trust him. And so Jesus tells us that even if you bring a tithe, you can actually do that without a God-honoring heart. How do I know? Well, Matthew 23, Jesus tells them. He says, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe, meaning you bring unto the Lord, not only your offering, but you tithe mint, and dill and cumin. Imagine going into your spice rack and saying, man, we've got too much salt. Let's bring some to the church. He says, you, you tithe even the smallest amount of things, yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he says, these things ought to have been done without neglecting the other. So he doesn't get on them about bringing their mint and their dill. He doesn't tell him, oh, that's really silly. He's like, wow, you're honoring God with even that. But you're missing my heart. But you miss my heart. He says, you're obeying the law, you're doing the list, you're checking the boxes, but you miss my heart. What you should have done is both, actually. So, so taking the next step, to become generous and living generously, it starts with our heart, and it says, okay, Regardless of what the Lord blesses me with, regardless of how much I have or with little I have, I'm going to bring, I'm going to set apart, I'm going to give unto the Lord because I trust him. A heart that says all that we have as God has been given to us by God and for God, so I want to live in such a way that displays the generosity of my king. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, each one, everyone, must give as he's decided in his what? 
So don't just tell me the number. What have you decided in your heart? Just give what you've decided in your heart, but not reluctantly, not like, ah, here it is. Or under compulsion, all pastor says, I gotta do it. God loves a cheerful giver. You see how serious God is about the heart? He says, I want your heart. I don't want you to give reluctantly. Rather, you know, if you're reluctant, then just don't. Right? If you feel like it's under compulsion, then don't. But give whatever you decided in your heart. This word cheerful is the, it's the Greek word hilaron. It's where we get the word hilarious. You may have heard people say, God loves a hilarious giver. That's where this comes from. It's like, it's like people look at your giving, they're like, that's, that's outrageous. That's, that's, that's incomprehensible. Like, that's hilarious. Why would, you, why would you do that? Because I was a slave. Because I was held captive. I was hopeless. I was helpless. And God saved me by his grace and his generosity. And so I want to honor him by trusting him with what I have. First Timothy 6. It says, as for the rich in this present age. Listen, that's talking about every one of us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Listen, so many times I'm bent toward putting my hope in riches. Anyone else? I look at my future, I look at my week, I look at my bank account, I look and say, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And so I've, I've set my hope on the uncertainty of riches. So he says, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but rather on who? On God. Put your hope on God. Why? Because he's the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to, to be rich in good works, to be, give me that word, generous and ready to share the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There is a story that's being told to you and me, and it's called The Good Life. You know the story. Every commercial, every advertisement, I dare say everything in your social media feed says this is the good life. And the good life is saturated with comfort, self-indulgence, status, safety, worth, value, value in what you can possess or what you can experience. This is the good life. But Paul says, if you'll be generous with all that you have, you actually will take hold of what is truly life. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so there's actually sociological data, not that we need data to back up the word of God, but there's actually data out there that says that the happiest, the most joy-filled people are those who are the most generous, right? Jesus says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that you might have life, life abundantly. Jesus came 
to give you life abundantly. Listen to me. Abundance is a mindset. Abundance is a mindset. And so may our abundant life be defined by Jesus and not social media. Now, why would we include generosity in a next step sermon? Because Jesus is after your heart. And Jesus says, your finances teach you about yourself. Did you know that? It's why we don't like it. Let me just ask you, how many of you feel like you can justify anything in your life? Come on, put your hands up. How many of you feel like, you know what, right now I could pretty much justify anything? Those of you who didn't raise your hands are justifying why you're fine. <laughs> you're like, you know what, I could pretty much justify anything. Did you know the scripture says that your heart is deceitful above all things? That, that we're able to defend our actions to ourselves unlike anyone. Like we are our world's greatest lawyer. You get yourself off on anything. You'll be able to defend yourselves on anything. Listen, that's why I tell you nobody lies to you more than you. Right? Nobody lies to you as frequently, as thoroughly, as perfectly as you lie to yourself. And, and so Jesus, listen to me, in a very, very real way, is like, yeah, I hear you. Uh-huh. I, I hear what you're saying that you value. I hear what you're talking about, about what you love and what you treasure. But let's look at your bank statement. Like it or not, spending and giving teaches us about ourselves. It shows us our deepest reality and where our affections are. Don't get mad at me. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, your heart is there also, which means your money flows toward your God. Your spending, your giving will show what you worship. It's the scriptures. And so if you and I are serious about understanding what's going on in our hearts, we have to look at how our money is going. It tells you a story. Your money tells a story about what you value. Now, listen, I'm not telling you that to make you feel guilty, and I'm not, I don't want anyone to feel hopeless or helpless. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. The enemy brings condemnation. Amen? And so conviction is to lead us to repentance and freedom. Condemnation leads to shame and death. I'm not trying to shame you. Jesus wants to set us free. And so biblically... Radical generosity and generous living is the way of Jesus. And it includes money and a thousand other things, but it absolutely includes money. Amen? It includes money. So biblically speaking, if your lifestyle and your financial decisions that you're making have created a scenario where you can't be generous, I love you enough to tell you, 
that says something about you. If you've created a lifestyle or a scenario where you can't be generous, that says something about your heart. As a follower of Jesus, we are called to generosity. Listen, if your car payment is keeping you from being generous, if that credit line that you took out for that new bedroom set is keeping you from being generous, if that loan that you took to get new floors or the the lake house or whatever it is is keeping you from being generous, if you look at your finances and you say, I can't afford to give, And listen to me, you're devoted to a lifestyle and you despise the way of Jesus. You'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. Yeah, I just just can't. Listen, if your coffee habit, okay, that's, that's too close to home. Coffee is a gift from God. (laughs) Comes from the heavens. No, listen. If your craving for coffee has kept you from being generous, it reveals something about what you actually worship, what you're actually all about. Philippians says their God is their belly, and their minds are set on earthly things. Listen, there's nothing wrong with nice homes. There's nothing wrong with nice cars. God knows there's nothing wrong with coffee. But let us never serve a master under a lifestyle that neglects the honoring and the display and the generosity and the grace of God towards us. All right, I'm going to close with this. Then the band's going to come, and we're going to respond. Uh, Verse 22, I told you I'd come back to it. Chapter 6, verse 22. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's talking about the way we see the world. Through which one? Is it morally list, religious, duty, ritualistic? Or it is grace given by God and for God is my entire life. I count everything as rubbish. I want to know Christ, how do you see your life? How do you see what you've been given? Listen, as believers in Jesus, the Holy Spirit shapes us deeper and deeper into a deep relationship with him. Amen? And so listen, over a period of time walking with Jesus, wouldn't you think that we would become more and more and more generous? that we would continually receive the grace and the generosity of God, that we would continue receive and experience the grace of God so that we would continually to show and display the generosity of God toward others? Here's your favorite verse. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Jesus' generously takes every bit of our rebellion and every ounce of our sinfulness upon him as he dies upon the cross. And in place, he gifts you his righteousness. Gifts you the righteousness of God that is in Jesus Christ so that you're holy and you are spotless and you are blameless in his sight. If you think that God is stingy, that God is trying to rob you when we talk about money, that if you think God is trying to take from you, then you will live in a fearful mentality and you'll always believe, I don't think I'll have enough. I just want to hold on to it. But if you see and know the grace-filled generosity of God, then we're able to walk in the light of that generosity and take the next step of living as generous followers of Jesus. Why? So that when your sons ask, why do you live that way? Because I was a slave and I was hopeless and I was helpless and I was a captive but by God's grace and God's generous hand, he saved me. And so I honor him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and do work with us right now. Oh God, Holy Spirit, come and lay my heart bare and show me the eyes of my heart so that I would see, I would see where my heart lies. Lord, we don't want to just, just do what we're told. We want to do what we love. And so, Lord, would you bend our hearts to love you more today? Holy Spirit, would you come and saturate our hearts with your grace and your kindness and your forgiveness today? Lord, I have nothing to offer. I have no works to, to perform, no, no, no accolade to bring before you, just my heart. Lord, as your church, we bring you our hearts. We ask you, God, to wash us and to redeem us so that we would know and experience your love in such a way that we would live hilariously. That we would live countercultural, that we would live upside down in this world, knowing that all that you've given is by you and for you, oh God. That there's nothing that I own that I actually possess. It is all for you. And so, Lord, would you make us generous stewards? Would you make us a generous church? Would you make us a generous people so that it would reflect our trust and our honor and our generous God? Jesus, today, 
We're not asking that we could do this on our own, but we're trusting that you would sweep in, transform us to take the next step of living generously. Oh, Lord, we need you. We trust you with our first and our best in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.